Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Ten days ago, on February 16th, UVA reported 229 new cases of COVID-19 in one day. Those 229 cases were 15% of all the new cases that day in the whole state. And as of this morning, UVA is reporting 912 active cases of COVID-19 among its students, faculty, and staff. So it's safe to say that we are experiencing an outbreak here in Charlottesville. Today on Soundboard, we talk about what's driving that outbreak and what the university is doing about it. And in the second half of the show, we sit down with a local organization that's tackling food justice in Charlottesville and Albemarle. Today, we have a new voice on the podcast. We're joined by Allie Sullivan from Charlottesville Tomorrow, and she's been covering the outbreak of COVID-19 at UVA. How are you doing, Allie? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. (laughs) So today is Wednesday, February 24th. Can you tell us how many active cases of COVID-19 UVA is reporting today? Yeah, there are 853 active cases and 833 of those cases are students. Like I said earlier, this conversation was recorded on Wednesday. And as of Friday morning, UVA reported 912 active cases of COVID-19 among its students, faculty, staff and contract workers. The vast majority of those cases are among students. So how is UVA defining what it means for a case to be active? An active case is one that's been discovered in the past 10 days. So that means that somebody tested positive for COVID in the last 10 days and should be isolating. How many cases did we see among the whole UVA community last fall? Last week was definitely the biggest spike in COVID cases thus far um, in comparison to last semester. So Throughout the entirety of the spring semester so far, we've only been here for three weeks, we've seen 1,246 cases of COVID among students. And throughout the entirety of last fall, the entire semester, we saw 1,176 cases of COVID. So we've already seen the number of student cases this spring outnumber the number of student cases throughout the entirety of the fall semester. And last semester, the biggest case spike in a single day was 59 cases. And compare that to last week when we saw 229 new cases of COVID on Thursday. So obviously, this semester has been a lot worse. Yeah. And we've talked on here and, you know, widely, I think UVA was credited with keeping COVID-19 fairly under control in the fall. So what went wrong? Why are the case numbers so high now? UVA officials and leaders have been blaming widespread noncompliance with the guidelines for the increase in cases. The restrictions included a six-person limit for gatherings, also with universal masking and social distancing, but UVA officials are saying that students have just let their guard down and haven't been following guidelines. And that was a concern last semester and before students came back, especially among local officials and UVA officials that a sense of COVID fatigue would set in and people would stop following the guidelines. So, so far, that seems to be to blame for the huge spike in cases. Um, UVA officials have also pointed out that there's been a huge increase in testing. 
last semester, students were tested randomly. So some students were given tests, you know, maybe once a month. Now students are required to test once a week. And obviously increased testing isn't to blame for an increase in cases, but it does mean that they're discovering more cases. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the positivity rate? Yeah. So we've definitely seen the positivity rate increase, especially in the last week. The positivity rate used to be below 1%. Before students got back, it was, you know, below 0.5%. Now the positivity rate has been hovering around 4%, meaning that 4% of students who take COVID tests are testing positive for COVID, which is much higher than it was in the past. So when UVA officials are saying, oh, we're testing more people, that means we're finding more cases of COVID, that is in part true, but that isn't creating a spike. Um, When you see the positivity rate increasing, that means that there are more cases of COVID than there were last semester, regardless of the increase in testing. Um, A lot of people have pointed to inter-sorority council and inter-fraternity council recruitment processes in uh, February. You wrote a whole article about what the university has said about that. UVA has a couple different Greek Life Councils. Can you kind of tell us about this Greek Life Council's recruitment process in the historically white Greek organizations? Yeah, yeah. So the Inter-Sorority Council and the Inter-Fraternity Council, which are the historically white (laughs) Greek organizations, um, they had their respective recruitment processes like in the first week and a half of the spring semester. And those processes were different because of COVID. However, they still included some in-person elements. So for the Inter-Sorority Council, they had their entire rush process over Zoom, but they had their bid days in person. Those bid days had to be guideline compliant. They were supposed to be no greater than groups of six. Everybody had to be masked. Some photos on social media indicate that that wasn't really the case for some organizations. It was somewhat the same for fraternities. They had to conduct their first round of recruitment over Zoom. Then later rounds included in-person elements that were, again, supposed to be guideline compliant. They were supposed to be no more than six people. People were supposed to be wearing masks. Some posts on social media indicate that that wasn't really the case. However, UVA has been pretty adamant that Greek life is not entirely the source of the spike in cases. But during the town hall on Friday... Jim Ryan said that there is, quote, no doubt that Rush contributed to this increase in cases. All right. So UVA also confirmed that the UK variant of COVID-19 is here in Charlottesville. Do public health experts think that variant is contributing to the spread? Yeah. So Mitch Rosner, he chairs the Department of Medicine at UVA. He said that the UK variant isn't to blame for this crazy spike in cases. Obviously, the UK variant is in the community, so he said that public health experts expect the influence of that variant to grow because it is just so much more contagious. All right. Can you take us back to the beginning of the semester? When did most UVA students come back to Charlottesville? And what did the university do to prevent those students from bringing COVID-19 back here with them? Sure. So students were supposed to come back around February 1st. Um, February 1st was the first day of classes. So, you know, people living in dorms on grounds or apartments on grounds, they came back, you know, a few days prior to February 1st. Students who live off campus in apartments or houses around Charlottesville could have come back earlier. They're not 
beholden to any sort of requirements because it's, you know, their own apartments. But before they came back, they were required to take an at-home COVID test. So the university had all students sign up to get a COVID test that they could take at home. They shipped it out um, to a lab. And if their test came back negative, they were allowed to come back. If they tested positive, they had to, you know, stay home and quarantine until they were okay. On the COVID tracker, it says that 187 students tested positive through those pre-arrival tests. And so those students were supposed to stay at home and not come back until they were they were healthy again. It might be too early to know, um, but do public health experts think students mostly caught COVID-19 once they returned to Charlottesville or brought it back with them? A combination? Yeah, I'm not really sure the answer to that, but public health experts from the Blue Ridge Health District have told me that the spread of COVID has been due to gatherings, both small and large, which are occurring in Charlottesville. So what is UVA doing to try to stop or slow this outbreak of over 800 cases right now? Yeah, so UVA um, handed down a bunch of new restrictions. One of those restrictions includes a ban on all in-person gatherings. So people cannot gather in any sort of group, no matter how large or small. They've also closed down a lot of the recreational facilities at UVA. So, for example, the gyms are closed. Libraries are also closed. So students are encouraged to not leave their dorms, not leave their apartments for anything other than essential activities like going grocery shopping or going on a walk. And those restrictions are going to be reevaluated this Friday, February 26th. Another quick update for you. On Friday morning, all members of the university community received an email that lifted the campus-wide lockdown, returning students and university personnel to normal restrictions. Students are now allowed to gather in groups of six with masks and social distancing, and recreational facilities will reopen. However, the university stated that many new cases were traced to students eating indoors with masks off. As a result, students may eat indoors at any university facility, but with no more than one other person. Do you want to talk a little bit about prevalence testing? Sure. So students are now required to get tests once a week. So they go to a number of locations that are around campus and they take a prevalence saliva test and students are doing that once a week and it is mandatory. That is a little bit different from last semester. Last semester, students were randomly selected for prevalence testing. Some students were tested, you know, once throughout the semester. Some students were selected a couple times, but now obviously the frequency has increased. I would add that students living on grounds in dorms were also tested once a week last semester, and that was mandatory. So the frequency of prevalence testing has only increased for people who aren't living in on-campus dorms. Is the university conducting any prevalence testing on employees and staff members? It's a little bit different. So Employees and staff aren't required to get tests, but they can voluntarily take a test. So they can do the same prevalence testing. They just get to decide when they want to do it. All right, so a UVA student tests positive. What happens next? Yeah, so it's a little bit different for students who are living on grounds in dorms or apartments and those living off grounds. 
So if a student who lives on grounds tests positive, they are immediately taken to isolation housing. So there's isolation housing in hotels around Charlottesville, also some dorms on grounds were converted into isolation housing. They have to stay there for 10 days after they test positive. They also have to, at the end of those 10 days, not have symptoms and they couldn't have had a fever within the past 24 hours. So the student isolates for that period of time and then they leave and go back to their dorms. And then for students living off grounds, they have the option to do the same thing. They have the option to go to the university designated quarantine and isolation space, but they don't have to. So if a student who's living in an apartment in Charlottesville tests positive, they are just asked to isolate from their housemates, not leave their apartment or house and stay there for 10 days after their positive test. Does the university have enough isolation space for all the 800 plus students infected right now? Yeah, so last semester started a little bit later. The delay was about two weeks. So in that time period, UVA converted the International Residence College, for example, into quarantine and isolation space. So UVA has a lot of Q&I space because they saw so many colleges fail to do that. They rented out, you know, hotels around Charlottesville to have enough space. And again, they have spaces on grounds. Okay, so what if you don't test positive, but your roommate or your classmate or somebody you were in contact with tests positive? Yeah, so it's it's a pretty similar process to testing positive yourself. So if you're living in an on-ground storm and you're exposed to somebody who has tested positive, you're sent to quarantine housing, which is basically the same thing. It's either a hotel or somewhere on grounds. Then you take a COVID test. If it's negative, you stay there for another 10 days. Um, If it's positive, you stay there for 10 days. And you're asked to do pretty much the same thing if you're living off grounds. Again, you have the option to go to the university designated quarantine space. You don't have to. All in all, you should be quarantining for, for 10 days after you're exposed. So last March, UVA asked the vast majority of its undergraduate students not to return to campus after spring break. Has the administration signaled that they could send students back to their primary residences again? So during the town hall, Jim Ryan said that that was like the last possible option that UVA would take. Administration has made it pretty clear that sending all of the students home is the last measure that they would take. And do you know any students who are considering voluntarily leaving Charlottesville? Nobody I know personally has headed back home. Um, However, I've seen on Facebook in the UVA parents group that a lot of first years, people who live in dorms have headed back home. They headed back home when the really restrictive measures were put into place. Um, So I know that at least a few first years have, have headed back home to their communities. Very exhaustive reporting, so thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Allie Sullivan is a recent graduate of UVA and an intern at Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org.
In our next segment, our production assistant, Mila Cesaretti, talks to Gabby Levitt and Richard Morris of Cultivate Charlottesville, a local organization growing, sharing, and advocating for food equity. Here's Richard Morris. Cultivate Charlottesville is, I believe, in its 11th, possibly 12th year. I think it's the 11th year. Uh, And we are primarily three programs. A lot of what we believe boils down to we believe that food is a human right. But the three programs that we have are City Schoolyard Garden, the Urban Agriculture Collective, and the Food Justice Network. Uh, at CSG, we have gardens in nine of Charlottesville's public schools and neighborhoods where we engage with uh, public school youth in garden-based experiential learning. For Urban Agriculture Collective, We are an urban farm, and we locate our gardens in public and subsidized housing sites. And we believe that working together to grow and share healthy food helps cultivate healthy communities. And on the Food Justice Network side, we are about 30-plus food system organizations. Uh, The Food Justice uh, Network works closely with Charlottesville City Council and departments. And what uh, FJN does is it is a combined collaborative action, uh, and they advocate for local policy change and amplifying community voices around food and racial and housing justice. Yeah, so you mentioned you work a lot with young people in the community, in the public schools. Why do you think it's so important to engage youth in the fight for food justice? We really like working with youth because uh, it's never too early to start um, talking about issues of food justice. Uh, When I was a child growing up out in Arizona, my parents always had a garden in the backyard. And so at any time I could go out and get my hands dirty. I knew uh, what a tomato was and where they came from. Uh, And that experience uh, shaped uh, who I became and, and also specifically how I thought about food and how I thought about food justice, even before I knew what food justice was. Um, And so in the garden, not only do youth learn how to grow food, but the garden is also a place where leadership skills, cooperatively working and learning together can also take place. The youth food justice interns and food justice leaders play a crucial role in sharing their voice and their vision for what a healthy and just food system looks like to city leadership. And so that principle and practice of elevating community voice really plays a role with engaging with youth as well. Have you had any memorable experiences that you would like to share working with the community for food justice? I can share one very recent. We have been working on our policy platform and released as part of that we elevated the our healthy school foods platform and had youth interns show up and community advocates show up to a joint city council and school board meeting to share their experiences with the school meal program and their vision for how it could improve and strengthen equity and it was just such a, a beautiful experience working with them to prepare their talking points and then to actually see them so bravely show up 
and speak out about what they believe in was really a wonderful experience to be a part of. Uh, in my case, uh, a lot of my background is in software development, you know, working in uh, co uh, corporate spaces. And so while I've been in the farming space for about 10 years or so, this is my first time with the nonprofit. I, I don't I did not see myself as a farmer, uh, but I spend a lot of time working with youth and with uh, community residents. And so there was one day uh, about a year or so ago, we were hosting an event at the garden and uh, there were a lot of children running around, and one of the uh, young young boys came up, got some some produce, and then as he was walking away, he turns around and goes, "Thank you, Farmer Rich," which is sort of my uh, my name uh, around town. And it was such a gift to be seen and thought of as a farmer. I took that as a real honor, and it and I felt like, okay, I, I've I can check that off my bucket list. I've really achieved something there. But also just knowing that we can have this interaction with uh, young people uh, in the city and that they really appreciate what we're doing and, and the work that they get to do with us. Thank you for sharing. I also wanted to talk about something on your page, how you really acknowledge and respect the land of Charlottesville and the original indigenous stewards of this land. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about who the original stewards of the land are in Charlottesville and Albemarle County and the importance of this recognition? The land that is in Charlottesville, we are on land of the Monacan people. Uh, the uh, Monacan Nation is uh, located in Amherst County, and it's always a good thing for us to somewhere in a conversation to recognize uh, who the first people were on this land and to honor the role that they played and that we we play as well. I know you're committed to also recognizing the role of race in agriculture and food insecurity in Charlottesville. Could you talk a little bit about how you've seen racial food inequity in Charlottesville and what our food system in Charlottesville needs to improve upon in that way? Well, one thing that might help to just frame this question is um, through the lens of our food equity action areas, which are around affordable housing, transportation, neighborhood food access and markets, urban agriculture, and healthy school foods. And so these are different pieces that make up our experiences in the community and transportation, housing, agriculture, these are education, these are all pieces that have been influenced by systemic racism in ways that create inequities that continue to exist today. And so there is a connection to food with all of those pieces. And uh, one of the th other things that we've done is uh, over the last year, we worked with black and brown farmers where we talked about issues that specifically uh, address those farmers. And we talked about those inequities and strategized about ways that we could improve the lot of black and brown farmers. Uh, it's, it's clear that there has been historic discrimination against black land ownership. Uh, so one thing we are, uh, an awareness campaign that we're about to launch is uh, a campaign uh, called Land is Liberation. And it was pretty cool because our youth intern uh, got to interview some uh, black farmers and ask them about, you know, what 
their lives are like, what their work is like, and sort of hear the history of some of those farmers. And so the youth are, uh, they created a couple of murals or in the process of creating some murals. And then we're going to launch a social media campaign to push this issue of land as liberation. Land is where wealth and power has historically come from in Charlottesville. And the ultimate goal is to have this awareness campaign power policy change such that the city commits to uh, long-term support for urban agriculture. So people who live in public and subsidized housing, really all of Charlottesville has uh, urban agriculture as a component of their lives, but especially for people uh, who have been historically shut out. With COVID-19, has that impacted your work with food insecurity in Charlottesville? On the Food Justice Network side, when the shutdown occurred back in March, the Food Justice Network was tasked with being a centralizing hub for an equitable food security response. And through our partnership with the city and the Food Equity Initiative and the Department of Human Services, we created a response infrastructure with communications tools that provided the updated information about different food support resources in the community through different mechanisms. And then in partnership with UVA Health and Centera and the the Health District as well as the city and county, we worked with those partners to develop this program and gather resources to be able to share out with city and county residents, um, including food and PPE and sanitation, hotel assistance, financial assistance, and prescription medications assistance as well. So we're acknowledging that the pandemic and the numbers were showing the, the racial inequities that exist and COVID really exacerbated those and exposed those inequities. And uh, one more effective uh, from COVID is because of housing uh, redevelopment in Charlottesville, USC has had to uh, downsize its gardens. We've gone from uh, roughly an acre to about 4,400 square feet. So uh, big change. So in late 2019, we started up a program called uh, Plant a Row for the Community. We reached out to local farmers uh, because we, we foresaw shortfall because we were growing in less space. And so we, we created connections with local farmers. And then March 2020 comes along and COVID uh, is, is a big issue. We were fortunate in that we already had established these connections with local, local farmers. And so they were able to help us meet demand for fresh produce throughout the season. So... This is a broad question that we touched on a little bit at the beginning, but you were talking about how your main approach to food justice is approaching food as a human right. So could you give a little bit of an explanation of how you might approach food as a human right and what the importance of that is? The food system uh, in America is broken in a lot of ways. Uh, Fair pay, the quality of the food, and who has access to certain foods. And so this idea that food is a human right, uh, it starts as just creating awareness about food. This is where a tomato comes from. This is how you grow a sweet potato. It starts from that to looking at, and we do this with the youth, looking at what inequities are there out there. One of the things that comes up is you quickly see 
that uh, there is an interconnectedness between food and housing and education and health care. So all of these uh, things, none of them exist in a, a silo. They're all connected. And so we work uh, closely with uh, housing in Charlottesville, promoting and pushing and supporting the uh, the idea that residents should not have to choose between better housing and having a garden. So it requires some creative thinking, but it also requires uh people to realize that food is a human right. Everyone should have access to good quality food. And ultimately, food sovereignty is is where we want to line up, where people have the choice to grow, produce, sell, consume uh, the food of their choice. We use a racial equity lens through all of this work as organizations working towards these broader goals that can't be solved by one individual organization because it's systemic in nature. The inequities are built into our systems and structures. So we have to create this whole understanding and lens through which we can approach all of the different pieces of our programs and our policies that that we advocate for. Could you talk a little bit about how food justice is related to climate change? As climate changes, it's going to affect what we can grow. Uh, and the degree to how well we can grow it. It's going to affect uh, plant diseases. It's going to affect uh, predation, like what creatures are, are preying on, on produce. And because of that, there will be a ripple effect to how, what food is accessible to people and the cost of that food. So growing food without thinking about the value and the importance of climate uh, I mean, that's that's not the way to do it. Uh, we really have to think about climate. If you're in Texas right now and you're trying to gear up for the growing season uh, where it's really cold out there right now and the ground's frozen and you can't, I mean, we're getting close to planting potatoes. That's hard to do if uh, you can't get a, a shovel into the ground because it's frozen and you can't irrigate because uh, the water pipes are frozen. So climate is super, super important. Yeah. And also in terms of low wealth residents and public housing residents who are experiencing energy inefficient housing have the added financial burden of increasing utility bills. That added cost is something that can impact food security. I'm sure many listeners would be interested in helping to support your mission, which is so important. So what are the areas in which you feel the need for volunteers or any upcoming events in which people could offer their support? If folks are looking to support our COVID response efforts, we're open to donations of supplies or funding to continue providing prepared meals and the sanitation supplies and all of the other supports. I'll put in a plug for the uh, Urban Agriculture Collective. Uh, it, it takes a lot of work to grow produce, and uh, we rely on volunteers in Charlottesville. And so uh, that's one way that people can support us. I mean, they could support us with donations as well uh, to support our work and the work of the community. If you go to our website, Cultivate charlottesville.org and go to the volunteer page. Uh, there's an email address, volunteer at cultivatecharlottesville.org. Uh, and on that page, we will, as we get closer to the growing season, we will post a schedule for when people can come and volunteer. 
Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Tanisha Alston and Mila Cesaretti. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>